Hope everybody's doing well. Thank you so much for joining us again today uh, for another episode of our, I guess, our COVID-19 talks. Um, today, we're going to talk about something that's very interesting to me. Hopefully, it'll be interesting to you all as well. And, and that's kind of um, how infectious disease has impacted the community um, over the years. Uh, as I've read several articles over the last um, several weeks, uh, I've learned more and more about how infectious disease has changed the way that we both live and the way that we work. So uh, we have some leaders from the local architecture community, both on the commercial and the residential side. Um, so on the residential side, we have Sarah Martin. Sarah, how are you doing today? Great, Kenneth. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Sarah's with Open Door Architecture. Uh, we also have, excuse me, on the commercial side, we have Casey Smith with Cope Architecture. How are you doing, Casey? Hello. Good deal. And then on the commercial side, we also have Daryl Johnson from Johnson Architecture. How's it going today, Daryl? Good, Kenneth. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you all for joining us. So very quickly, I want to let you all talk about your various firms uh, and what you all do and specialize in. And, and Sarah, we can start with you. Okay, great. So my firm, as Kenneth said, is Open Door Architecture. Our slogan here is that every house needs an architect. So we specialize in all of those jobs that 99% um, of what we do are renovations. So a lot of what we do are design work for um, kitchen renovations, master suites, additions, screen porches, um, all those kinds of improvements that people like to do their, to their homes, whether they've just moved in or more commonly when they've been there for 20 years and now they're empty nesters and they wanna change some things around. Um, we do specialize in historic home renovations. So our favorite neighborhoods to work in are Fort and Gill and Sequoia Hills and Holston Hills and North Hills and they're all called Hills here in Tennessee because that's how it rolls in, in East Tennessee. Um, but we love it. We, we live in a hundred year old house this year, turned a hundred, and um, that's the kind of work we really chase. So we enjoy um, historic neighborhoods, historic homes, and making them work for modern living. Awesome. Awesome. Casey? Hi, I'm Casey Smith. Um, I'm the Executive Vice President of Cope Architecture. We're around a 20-person firm uh, located here in Knoxville. And um, as Kenneth said, we primarily do commercial architecture. Um, most of our projects are uh, publicly funded projects so we do a lot of work for uh, local governments the county government state government and federal governments um, i'd say our largest market segment that we work in is education um, it's probably about 60 to 70 percent of what we do um, so that includes k-12 education projects um, in east tennessee and Central Tennessee, and also higher education projects. So we do a lot of work with the University of Tennessee and such. Awesome, awesome. And Daryl? Uh, well, my name's Daryl Johnson. I'm with Johnson Architecture. We are a 23-person firm, uh, and we just celebrated our 25th year last year. So uh, been around a little while, and uh, when I got started years ago, I had uh, Sarah's firm, basically. Uh, we did we did small additions and renovations to homes and some custom homes, but uh, over time, as as we took the company and began to try to diversify, uh, we kind of spread our wings and uh, really uh, branched out into more private sector commercial work. So we currently we will still do a house or two a year. Uh, it's not the it's not the focus of our firm primarily, but we still do uh, churches and schools uh, a lot like Casey's firm. Uh, we do some work at the University of Tennessee, uh, the Knoxville Zoo. Uh, I have a background in entertainment design, so 
uh, some of that uh, has followed me as my career has progressed at Dollywood and, and the zoo and, and other areas around the, really around the region. This is, this is good. I'm learning some things about you all that I didn't actually know. Uh, so this, this will be good. Well, I'll tell you what, let's get right into it. And um, Casey, I'll, I'll ask you the first question, if you don't mind. Um, so when I first came into the workforce uh, about 15 years ago, um, the trend was starting just on the cusp of moving towards more uh, open environments. Um, wanted to have more of an open workspace. And uh, over the last couple of years, we've kind of seen that scale back just a little bit, but it's still uh, been very prevalent um, with, with architecture and the way that it's laid out right now and with people thinking about infectious disease, do you see any type of change in um, layout formats of offices? Uh, and if so, what do you think that might look like moving forward? Well, I think we'll have to frame our discussion in two phases. We're going to have an immediate response that companies can do in the near future. And by near future, I mean probably 12 to 18 months. Um, and then in the looking a little further out and how things um, will change. Um, in my personal experience, I've not seen a great decline in open office concepts. We still, still see that quite a bit. Um, your biggest risk factor there is going to be your air quality. Um, that's how most infectious diseases are transmitted. And um, when you have the open air concept, you're recirculating a lot of air that a lot of people are breathing. Um, when you have individual offices, um, you can contain that more. You can run it through more filters. You can have PTAC units. You've got a lot of different strategies that you can use to isolate the air that people are breathing. Um, all of that adds a great deal of cost though. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out um, in classroom design, which is basically a small unit office, just like in an office complex where we're trying, when we're looking at a, a cluster of group of people in one space um, versus an office concept where you've got one person in one space. Um, every time you add individual offices, you're adding operable doors that get touched by people. Um, so I think we're gonna start to see some, um, I know on the short term offices are um, propping doors open and things like that so that people are not coming in contact with um, common doorknobs. Um, obviously there's doors that you cannot do that um, for fire control and things like that. But um, for years we've been putting um, automatic doors on entrances into retail spaces. Um, I would see potentially perhaps an increase in that in office environments. Again, that adds cost. So um, that's something I'm very interested to see where people are willing to invest their money um, on different strategies that we can offer. Okay. And Sarah's going to ask you a question next, but I would love to give both you and Daryl a, a chance to uh, answer that question as well and, 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 get, and get your take. Yeah, about workplaces in particular, off open office. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, I have been following the decline of the open office environment in other arenas, like about work focus, productivity, communication styles, like all those other impacts that open office environments have. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a mixed bag because like Casey said, lots of offices is lots of doors, is lots of other opportunities to touch things. But open offices are people switching places a lot and sharing germs and all that kind of stuff. So 
Um, what I've learned from resident, from homeowners, which I find is very interesting and probably pertinent to a lot of these questions, is um, that the important thing to do is it's almost a furniture fix, but just to have cleaning stations or cleaning, um, you know, little cleaning caddies or cleaning storage areas where you can keep all the stuff that you need to clean right there in plain sight so that you're kind of working with the human nature of like, okay, is there something extra that goes on the desk or on the shelf or whatever, where someone, as soon as they sit down, they see the hand sanitizer, they see the Clorox wipes, like something we architects want that want it to look nice, you know, so maybe there's a product design opportunity out there for someone to create little cleaning kits that are integrated in the open work environment so that like work with the fact that people have to sit at these tables and desks and like just clean them constantly. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I completely agree with everything that Casey and Sarah both have said. I, I, I do believe, uh, you know, the, the efficient, the open office environment was an efficient uh, uh, concept to maximize the amount of people you could get into a certain amount of space when you don't have to accommodate wall thicknesses and door swings and all of those kinds of things. It becomes a much more efficient, thereby cost effective way of addressing uh, a need for more people in a in a particular space. We we began to see in some of our corporate work we began to see uh, that changing slightly in in terms of the way that it was used, uh, primarily from an open collaboration kind of atmosphere. Uh, we began to see different companies moving toward uh, a workstation, but then common areas amongst those workstations in some cases very prevalent to where people could break out and they could begin to interact with one another and collaborate on it in a greater manner, uh, a greater uh, experience than they normally would have had. I think that lends itself to some, some inherent problems though. Uh, as Sarah said, you know, you're constantly looking at who touched this surface? How are we going to deal with that? How close are we to that person? So, uh, and, it, and it kind of manifests itself down the line, even, even to, to our company, uh, with individual workstations, you know, now as we begin to bring people back into the office, uh, as we move slowly toward that, uh, we, we may be looking at how do we begin to separate those areas between employees a little bit more. So that will ultimately begin to uh, trickle down to more space required, uh, which means renting more space or buying more space and finishing more space and cost associated with that. Add to that the HVAC issues, as Casey mentioned, where you know now you're looking at air quality, a higher a higher number of air exchanges uh, per hour, and and all of the other nuances that go along with trying to create. It's it's almost like creating a hospital environment if you think about it that could be cleaned uh, on a on an ongoing basis uh, that has surfaces that are highly durable, highly cleanable. Uh, I think it's going to change pretty dramatically the way we look at things. I do think that there's an, there's a, there will be um, an immediate response, as Casey said. There will be an immediate response. It will probably be more severe than the ultimate response may be. But I do think that the normal, the new normal is going to be very different than what we're used to. Awesome. And, and Sarah, I'm going to ask you a question that's pertained more towards an article that you and I uh, shared with one another about uh, residential locations, but obviously I want to hear uh, Casey and Daryl's thoughts on it from a commercial standpoint. Um, and that has to do with, um, you all have all talked about touching things. We know that, that touching things and touching our faces can be, that can be very dangerous in terms of 
the transmission uh, of, of germs and eventually infectious disease. So, and I think um, the article that we shared had, uh, it talked about um, the usage of vestibules uh, and how that could change. Um, so as far as hand washing, whether sinks or stations and homes, do you think that we're gonna see any change in how um, we architect and design um, our spaces to be more accommodating to clean hands? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think sinks in and of themselves are just going to become so much more prevalent. Like now we almost think of extra sinks as a luxury thing, like, oh, two sinks at a vanity, a double vanity, or a, the bar sink in addition to the kitchen sink or the butler's pantry sink, you know, all these kind of extra things. And they've almost been a, a hallmark of more luxury interiors. Um, but sinks aren't all that expensive as long as you're not having to do some major plumbing work to fit them in. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if in addition to homeowners asking for them in places like laundry rooms that they've always asked for, if they start asking them, asking for them in mud rooms, um, any like those transitional spaces that you have in your house, um, you know, current homes that are built now in more uh, modern neighborhoods, oftentimes people use the back door. And so that's you know, mudrooms have become so popular because people will park and go in the back of the house or through a garage entrance. And that's a real natural place for um, a sink. I, of course, specialize in these historic neighborhoods. And I think um, they also, you know, everything old is new again. They also have like something to teach in terms of controlling um, infectious disease. The front porch has been an excellent staging area for us. Like hopefully the new normal doesn't include Lysoling your groceries every week, but we've been doing that, you know, and the front porch is one of those places where I can take out my shopping bags and spread everything out. And I've got plenty of space to like clean things before they actually enter my house. Um, so, you know, maybe that's an outdoor kitchen opportunity where we can put a little sink somewhere. Um, and for houses, like our house is craftsman and it's a little less formal where when you walk in, you are in the living room. Um, but for houses that are a little bit more formal or have that front entry hall, I could totally see ornamental sinks being something that is a new trend. Um, there are already so many gorgeous pedestal sinks that I can definitely see homeowners being interested in having that as something that is a creative opportunity for us to design a little bit of house jewelry into the front that is also functional. Um, so yeah, I think sinks are going to be a big thing. Well, about 15 years ago, I put a pedestal sink in, my, in the kitchen in my main bathroom. And it was so beautiful, and I was so happy to have it. And then as I was rearranging everything, I thought, where am I going to put all my products? <laughs> so I didn't, I, didn't have, I, didn't, I, didn't make, I didn't make the necessary arrangements to have things to put like my rubbing alcohol and my shaving kits and all that stuff. So um, and I, I thought about that when you said that. Uh, Casey, what do you see maybe on the, uh, on, the, on the commercial side in terms of how hand washing or sink stations um, could evolve as we move forward? I think one of the um, places that will affect my firm the most is in our K-12 school designs. Um, we're really looking at that. Um, currently, we'll do large um, toilet and sink um, areas as you go into the wings of the classrooms. Um, we have historically looked at the sink placement from a safety standpoint. Um, we'll often pull them to the corridor so that teachers can supervise hand washing. Um, but I think that will become even more 
prevalent um, to encourage students to wash hands uh, throughout the day, perhaps a sink station going into the cafeteria or any place that uh, the kids will cluster and congregate. Um, in the younger grades, we often put sinks in the classrooms, but as the children get older, um, there are not sinks in the classrooms. I think we might see that change. And then, Dara, what about you? Uh, well, uh, you know, our experience uh, uh, is probably more similar to Casey's uh, than to Sarah's. I will say, though, that on, on some of the more public facilities that we work on, uh, whether it's at the zoo or at Dollywood, uh, you want, we have, you know, for, for a number of years been looking at non-touch kinds of, of uh, efforts, whether it's foot activated uh, hand basin, wash basins for hands with uh, motion activated, uh, you know, faucets uh, or, or other devices, uh, automatic door openers and things like that. I, I think that was the technology that, that, you know, we're sort of already moving towards. So, I think that it's a good, there's probably a, a good basis of, of a start in place for that kind of, uh, that kind of effort. Um, as far as, you know, the, the K through 12, the same here, we, you know, you want, we, we've, in most of the, the facilities we've worked on, we've moved the, the sinks out basically to the hallway, uh, to an, al an alcove. Uh, you know, you, you do the best that you can there, but uh, creating more non-touch types of uh, environments, I think, is really the direction that we'll probably see uh, going more toward on all facilities. Well, uh, Daryl, you actually led me exactly to my next question. So um, you named a couple of really popular ones, but uh, I'll ask Casey and Sarah, do you all see any other types of um, devices, entryways, um, products that, may, that we may move to touchless? Um, I think I read an article um, about elevators uh, in different buildings that may go to touchless. Do you all see any other devices or products, uh, equipment that may go to touchless as we move forward? I think this whole pandemic has really um, sped up the trajectory that we were already on in terms of those things. Um, there, uh, there's uh, actually the last time I stayed in Nashville, the elevator was operated by my cell phone. Um, in the parking garage, you know, I opened up the door with my cell phone. I didn't touch anything um, until I got to um, the actual uh, unit. So um, the technology's there. I think we all just have to catch up in sophistication on how to use it. Yeah, you're starting to see it more in residential. Um, kitchen sinks are the number one thing right now that people are interested in those like touchless faucets where it's more like a commercial bathroom. Um, and people have liked th that. But for, for residential, it seems to me that the most pertinent place or the biggest opportunity for that kind of innovation is at doors, the entry doors to the house. So the front door, the back door, anywhere that you might have neighbors or salespeople or service people coming up, anyone that's not kind of in your quarantine that might have access to the house. Um, so I think touchless entry there or some other sort of... Um, I don't know, just more kind of buffer spaces or stages that you can have to go through before you get in the house. I think that that's where touchless is really going to be handy in the future. Well, when we when we get off the recording, I'll have to ask Casey where was this fancy hotel that she stayed at because <laughs> that I was at, I still had a key to get in my door, so I need. To, I'm clearly not staying in the right places. Um, so. 
we talked a little more about how you, your respective uh, firms have adjusted to working remotely. And uh, that is something that I don't think is going to go away. I think there'll be a, a obviously a, a gradual shift as people re-enter the workplace. Uh, but some companies will decide that remote work is for them now forward. That will probably one end of the spectrum. And then you'll have companies, I think, at the other end of the spectrum that will say, well, now we're going to have uh, percentages of our employees that work remotely, or we're going to have options, or we're going to have certain days of the week that people can work remotely if they so desire. So, um, Casey, I'll start with you. In terms of um, how you see maybe office spaces being constructed or, um, or just different um, spaces um, that are designed, how do you think that we'll adjust those to work from home uh, environments? That's a complex question. Um, I've discussed this with some colleagues and one of the first suggestions was that office spaces could actually become smaller. Um, and there's this trend in the market already for a shared workspace. Um, there are some companies that are going to AB, AB shifts and sharing workspace in order to reduce the uh, footprint that they have to maintain. Um, but then you've got two people sharing physical space um, one day to the next. You'll have one person sitting at a desk on Monday and a different person sitting at that desk on Tuesday. So that presents itself a, no, a whole nother host of problems. Um, I really think it's gonna be industry specific on how, how that is handled. Um, I don't think there's a, exact perfect answer to that. Yeah. Daryl, any, any thoughts on your end? Yeah, actually, um, you know, I, I think it is very much industry specific. Uh, I, it, for example, my 29-year-old daughter uh, works for an advertising and marketing company in Atlanta, and she, she works from home full-time. They require uh, a monthly meeting, or a, I think it's a bi-monthly meeting, uh, to just kind of uh, I guess go over where the status of where their projects are, but, but her, her life revolves around working at home. And when she's, when I, when I do see her, uh, she's on conference calls constantly. She's on zoom calls or go to meeting. Uh, so she's constantly interacting. Now with architects, I think it's different. Um, when we bring a young architect into our office, we couldn't immediately cut them loose and say work from home. There's a lot of training, a lot of collaboration, a lot of mentoring that needs to occur before I think uh, any of us would feel comfortable cutting somebody loose and saying, sure, just work remotely and you know, tell me when you've got this done and, and then we'll take a look at it. I, I just think that they're, number one, we owe that to them uh, as, as employers, but number two, those, those documents that are being prepared are supposed to be done under our direct supervision. So there's a bit of a, a, of a uh, professional responsibility that we have when I think it comes to uh, working remotely uh, or, or working in the office. And we're fortunate right now, although we have two new hires starting in May, uh, we're very fortunate right now that we didn't have that situation. Most of the even the younger architects that we had were fully capable and had been with us for enough time that we felt okay with them working from home. So uh, I do think that it's a little bit different in our profession and we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to shift and adjust and figure out how we can do that uh, so that it doesn't impact 
the development of those young architects moving forward. And then, and then Sarah, we'll uh, ask you the same question, but the reverse, right? So as Casey and Daryl talk about what it looks like on the office space side, uh, for you, uh, what do you think it might look like on um, the residential side? Yeah, it, um, it really is going to require more of these kinds of small rooms, you know, like I can imagine, or at least a small corner of a room. Like one of the challenges that I could not have foreseen before I had two young children is that a home office is great if you find space for it, but if it's in the middle of the house, like good luck getting anything done. <laughs> they will distract you. Um, so, so that is a good, it's something that like, most houses have that kind of leftover space. You know, that's often why they call me is they're like, hey, I have this room that's too big for a laundry, but not big enough for a bedroom. Or maybe I was thinking about it being this or that. Um, all those little needs that you have in a house, like a workout space, uh, maybe overflow guest room, I, um, an office, like those are, those are functions that can kind of share that kind of small leftover room. So, you know, for years on the home improvement television shows and all that kind of thing, you've seen this trend towards like open floor plan or more open spaces. And I, I have a feeling this will at least in small part reverse that trend where people are going to be looking for one little cellular room that they can close the door and, and keep their computer up. You know, for years with our small house, we did a lot of our work remotely at the dining room table. And that kind of drove us insane because then you've got your dining room table cluttered all the time. So I can see the need for having to chop up or chop off a little part of the house um, and dedicate it to a workspace um, for a lot of people. So one thing that I guess is common sense to most people, but I didn't really think about it until I read it, is that uh, germs actually can live or it's easy for them to just rest and live on flat surfaces. And so you have the, the natural um, things that you can do, uh, Lysol and Clorox and all that stuff. You can clean off desks phones, all those things on a constant basis to make sure that germs are not being transmitted from one person to the next. But I'll let either Daryl or Casey help inform me. This is maybe just a personal question. What else can be done from a design and an architecture perspective to decrease the number of flat surfaces or potentially um, make sure that those flat surfaces are maybe less, I don't know, less prone to, to germs and being able to to live and reside and be transmitted on them. So I'll let either one of you go if you have a, have any thoughts on that. I know it's a kind of a different question, so, but one that sparked yeah, my interest. A, that, uh, I'm sorry, Casey. Uh, go ahead. Um, that, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting dilemma. Obviously, as uh, over time, as, as digital uh, uh, innovations have occurred more and more, the need for, say layout space or flat surfaces uh, at least in our profession have have diminished somewhat uh, with that said it you know we still have a significant need for let flat layout space so creating spaces that uh, uh, that are germ free uh, is is a really interesting challenge and I, I'm not sure I have an answer for it I I think that you know it's it's easier in some other uh, some other instances uh, like uh, in the medical fields, for example, uh, you know, it's kind of like we do, we do a lot of restaurants and, and restaurant owners hate flat surfaces because servers always put a picture on them. 
So, uh, you know, it, it, we, we've sloped those kind of services. But, it, but it, in a day-to-day environment where uh, the, the work effort itself requires some level of flat service, I'm, I'm not sure that other than just addressing how you keep that surface clean, I'm not sure that there are a lot of other answers. Maybe, maybe there's something creative that, that uh, you other guys have, have thoughts about, but I, I don't have much. I agree. Um, I think what it comes down to is the materiality of those surfaces, um, making sure that they are as um, non-porous as you can get them and um, surfaces that can um, endure the harsh chemicals and cleaning that will they'll undergo. Um, our largest horizontal surface is the floor. Um, in our classrooms, we're going to be reducing the amount of carpet in our classrooms. We've got children rolling around on the floor for group time. Um, that needs to be a non-porous surface that we can clean. Um, things like that, our countertops, um, where a wood surface may not be able to withstand the chemical cleaning for duration of time, we'll have something a little bit more durable there. Um, as Daryl mentioned, looking at these more from a um, hospital and medical standpoint in our design approach, um, I think we'll start seeing more things like that. You know, it's interesting that you bring up wood. I started to read an article last night, but I'm, a, I'm an old man. I fell asleep before I even got into it. But I, I, I scanned it very quickly, and I saw where it talked about wood and the uses of wood moving forward. But I didn't, um, I didn't get a chance to read it, but I'm sure that's what they were talking about was uh, potentially a reduction in using wood on some of that's a really good point Sarah do you have anything to add to that well again I think um in the places where we can't necessarily like solve it with the use of that space because as Casey and Daryl have both said like we need flat spaces and desks and countertops and all those kinds of things flat surfaces um Maybe we need to take a note from the grocery stores and like now we've all gotten used to that, like pull up the disinfecting wipe and wipe off the handle. Like maybe whereas now we have cable grommets and, you know, troughs and trays for our um, networking equipment. Maybe we start adding little like there's a place to just have disinfecting wipes that you pull right out of the desk. And right when you sit down, that's the, that's the habit, you know, so some of it may be behavioral modification and cues rather than changing the, the hard installed surface itself. Maybe I should get out of the IT business and move towards the disinfectant business is what I'm here. <laughs> there we go. Got a new, got a new industry. Uh, as, we, as we wrap up, I want to just take um, a few minutes to just let everyone hear from you all. You know, I've kind of been asking questions, but you all have thoughts because you all live in this every day. You live it and you breathe architecture. Uh, obviously, you're very passionate about what you do. So I just wanted to kind of hear closing remarks from each of you all in terms of um, ideas that you have, thoughts that you have. Uh, or if there's anything even positive that you want to say to people moving forward. I think the level of um, the unknown is, is, is slowly shrinking by the day as we, be, as we become, um, as the comedy opens back up and we have um, stage phases that, hey, we know if we're good, do well for 28 days, then we can do this. So some of the uncertainty has kind of gone down. But just want to hear from you all from an architecture standpoint, uh, any, any ideas or thoughts that you all may have and then anything that you want to just say as we close out. Uh, Daryl, I'll start with you, and then we'll go with uh, Sarah, and then we'll let Casey finish this up. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I think um, this certainly has been uh, a, a pretty significant monkey wrench in 
uh, not only in, in our economy uh, and, and, and in particular in the design profession, but I think in society in general. And I think uh, without getting to, uh, for certainly not political uh, or philosophical, I do think that architects as a, as a group need to really band together and, and come up with uh, some best practices that can be utilized across the board. Uh, you know, it, it's going to take a lot of creative people, uh, many hours to, to figure out how best to address the way that, the, that we need to move forward as a, as a community to, to design uh, buildings that can comply with the, the safeguards that need to now be in place. I think this, this issue has always been there. Obviously it was there in 1918. Uh, and, and I think that over the course of the last 100 years, uh, the strides that have been made are, are you know, without equal. We, we have created environments and, and structures and uh, design opportunities that are uh, far and above, I think, a lot of our peers. Uh, obviously, uh, there are lots of great things going on in other countries, but I think America is, is still uh, the cutting edge for really innovative design. What we find now is that the, the solutions, maybe we were all very naive in the beginning that solutions occurred as quickly as they did. Uh, vaccines and, and all of those kinds of things that I think we, I, I know, I'll, I'll speak for myself, I took, I took for granted how quickly those things occur and how, and how uh, intact our society was in terms of solving problems. And now we're in a position where no one has solved this problem. And I think we, we have to back up and we have to figure out how do we put the mechanisms back in place, not only in, in all of those other economic uh, machines, but also in our profession, in the design profession. How do we put those safeguards in place that they become part of our normal everyday operating procedure? And a lot of them were already there. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's an insurmountable task, but I think it has to be on the front of our minds and not just an afterthought as we move forward. Awesome. Sarah? I have really been reflecting a lot on how my career and my work with older homes is so relevant now um, in this COVID situation. Um, I live in an urban neighborhood. A lot of the historic neighborhoods are very, you know, small lot sizes, close houses, sidewalks, front porches, all that kind of thing. And the, the, elements of that that I have found myself being so grateful for are um, the stages of interaction that those spaces provide. So this is almost more of like a neighborhood planning or city planning kind of attribute or characteristic these older neighborhoods have, but I think we can carry that knowledge into, um, you know, new neighborhood development. There's so many reasons that people already like that kind of historic neighborhood setup, but we have we keep saying how grateful we are that we live in this kind of situation right now during all this social isolation because we've never really felt that isolated um because of front porches like when we go out on a walk in the neighborhood you know people have to use their etiquette to kind of like switch sides of the sidewalk and make sure that we're not getting too close to each other but as i'm walking along i've gotten to interact with so many of my neighbors um face to face essentially but 15 20 feet away as they're sitting on their front porch and i'm down on the sidewalk um so those kinds of in-between spaces like front porches have really been wonderful, um, almost like 
mental containers that we can use where it's like, here's my safe space up here. You're down in that space. We have a separation and yet we can still enjoy the human experience of connecting and, you know, being in each other's um, company, which has been great. So I think that's something, you know, it's another cue or another reason not to get rid of that, to keep it and let it keep bring us forward. Um, and the other thing I'll say, just from a personal standpoint, I have been so thankful that technology for communication, like what we're doing right now on a Zoom call, has had gotten to the level where it is, where it was in early March before this all hit. Um, and even like curbside grocery delivery and, you know, all those other kinds of things that we're enjoying now, and they've certainly had to like rush and and catch up with this new demand, but I am so glad that we had those systems available to us because um, I don't think I would have fared quite as well in 1918. <laughs> Casey? Uh, well, I think the common thread and what all we're talking about is um, the human behavior and human relationship side of all of this. Um, I think Daryl's right, the normal everyday operating procedures that we're accustomed to are going to change. Um, and it's been really interesting to watch how people react to all this situation and it'll be more interesting to watch as people come back into the workplace and how they're going to interact with one another. Uh, we're all social beings and as architects we design environments that um, create space for all these interactions to play out. Um, so I have no doubt that uh, we'll rise to the challenge because that's what we do. We're architects and, and we solve problems. This is just definitely a new problem we've never seen before, but um, I have no doubt we'll be able to react and our built environment will um, will respond accordingly. Well, I'm, I am certainly excited to see what the future of architectural design brings. I would be remiss if I didn't say one thing. I, on Tuesday, it was the first time that I put on slacks uh, and I <laughs> And so I was fortunate enough to go to a uh, on-site and uh, work with a, a potential partner. And I literally looked in my calendar and I said, let me figure out the last time I put on slacks. And I went back and I counted and I said, that event was canceled. That event was canceled. And I went <laughs> back to March 11th. And Casey, that was the day that you and I went to Mexico. That was the day it all went upside down. Yes. <laughs> That was, so, that was the last time that I put on professional attire before uh, this past Tuesday. So well, we had a big uh, industry gala planned for this weekend. Our AIA gala, of course, is uh, canceled. And I have a beautiful dress that I will wear someday <laughs> in my closet. <laughs> well, I was happy that my, my, my slacks still fit me. That was what that was what <laughs> for me. I guess I didn't get the quarantine 20. So. Uh, but thank you all so very much for your time. I know you all are extremely busy. I love hearing about people that are still working so hard and obviously employed during this very, very difficult time for so many. So thank you all again very much for having or for being here. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all in person, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later.